Welcome to Subcut, the medical-ish podcast where we talk about topics that are interesting if you're a high schooler or a medical student or a doctor or pretty much anyone interested in a field of healthcare. My name is Justin. I used to be a doctor. I'm Emma. I'm a third-year physiotherapy student. I'm Neil. I'm a fourth-year medical student. Kia My name is Georgia Tsionowita and I am a sort of fourth-ish year student doing research. I'm Norada Tonga Aho and I... Uh, my family name is Tipiritu from the Cook Islands. Kia ora nā. Um, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Coralie Tākuera ahau. Uh, no Pangaru ahau, te taho tōku pāpa, ko Pangaru te maunga, ko Hokianga te moana, ko ngā tōku matawaroa te waka, ko te raroa te iwi, ko Ngāti Manua te hapū. Uh, my name is Coralie Tākuera and I'm a doctor onto my registrar training years. And if you haven't figured out by now, we've got some guests on. Uh, they're not the normal Neil and Emma. Uh, you know, <laughs> moving past that now. Boring old trio. Um, <laughs> we, the, the topic that we're talking about today is one that's been requested a couple of times, uh, which is why we've got our guests today. And the topic is around medicine, medical school, specifically around the context of Maori getting into medical school with Maori background. Um, and all the cultural things associated with that. Now, I know that not all of you listening here are from New Zealand. Um, so if you're not too familiar with that, long story short, uh, New Zealand, like a lot of other countries that w- were once upon a time co- colonized, uh, has an indig- had an indigenous, has an indigenous population that still lives in the country and was incredibly marginalized by the colonizing party. Fast forward a bunch of years, it caused a lot of problems. There are still problems. And New Zealand... Frankly, compared to the global community, is actually dealing with it a lot better than in other countries. But if you're listening in Australia, if you're listening in the US, a lot of the topics, a lot of the themes that we're going to be talking about is going to be pretty much the same. A lot of the challenges will be very similar in terms of concept. Um, But this is going to be a really good one for our New Zealand listeners who want to just get a deeper understanding of something which is fundamentally a part of New Zealand culture, New Zealand fabric, um, and just getting a a better understanding of that. So... Let's uh, jump in a little bit, just starting with your background in a little bit more detail. Um, Georgia, do you want to start just telling us about kind of the beginning of this whole kind of journey for you entering into medicine? When did the first thought get incepted and and then and then how did that kind of, you know, grow? Right. Um, yeah, so I'm Kokara Māori on my father's side and my father was born in Nui Island moved to, and our family is Cook Island Māori, moved to New Zealand, as many Pacific Islanders do, for education, for jobs and stuff. And my father went to medical school in Auckland. Um, Yes, my dad's um, anaesthetist down in Palmy. And so I started loving medicine from when I was like three years old. And I wanted to be a doctor ever since I could like first talk, my first like big book. My dad got me a massive anatomy book um, that I used to study when I was little. So always loved that idea of medicine. And my dad's uncle, he was also a doctor in the Cook Islands, one of the first doctor um, Cook Island doctors there. So yeah, I had that environment with me when I was really young and sort of really found a passion for getting into medicine and really making big changes. When I went to the Cook Islands one time, I went with my grandma Wawo to um, one of the clinics there and just seeing the stark difference in the Cook Islands, like with healthcare versus what New Zealand has in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And 
from that recognizing um, there's a lot more to medicine than my love for science because that's kind of what started it mm. and yeah I knew exactly luckily I knew exactly what I needed to do in high school in order to get into medicine I loved science and all that stuff so yeah that was sort of my journey with it all the beginnings of it at least yeah there's so many points I already want to jump yeah. in, yeah. <laughs> but we'll, we're going to hold off. Coralie, do you want to give your um, background? Yeah, sure. Um, so my beginning is a bit quite different, actually. So um, I remember when I was little, I used to um, play with the animal soft toys and smear ink on them, like uh, red ink, and then bandage <laughs> them up. And I've got no one in my family that's a doctor or a nurse. I'm not actually sure where that started, but I kind of knew from quite a young age that I wanted to be a doctor. and But also at that time, there was sort of less awareness of what careers you could do. So at our school, I went to all Māori high schools, um, you know, you'd sort of be a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, you know, some of these things were just words that were thrown out there that was quite um, desirable that if you could be become that. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, my grades are pretty good, so that means I'll go for the doctor. Um, but I didn't have any role models or anyone in the science field. So I actually went to my mum's GP to ask him how you go about getting in. And so he gave me advice, you know, you need the best marks possible. What are you good at? And I was good at painting. So actually I did mostly arts, painting, design, all that um, kind of art. My mum's an artist. And so to get my marks up so that I could get into uni. Um, and I knew, okay, I need to take physics and chem and I wanted to do the human bio, but my school doesn't offer that because there's only seven people in seventh form. So basically <laughs> I had, yeah, very small school. That's year 13. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, but again, that shows you the differences in academic inequity within Māori high schools. So if you want to pursue your language and your culture, but academically it's not oh. strong, you know, you're already starting at a disadvantage. So I knew, okay, I've got to take chem. So... I did chemistry by correspondence on top of my subjects, and but physics just wasn't available. So when I hit uni um, in that sort of first year, pre-med year, um, I got friends to tutor me in physics. Um, but chemistry, unfortunately, I failed. So that means it just wasn't an option to get into med. So I had to finish my degree, became a scientist, did honours, and then ended up as a scientist for four years. And then down the track, you're kind of like loving earning money. Mm -hmm. But the professor, my professor, very supportive of me, he's like, okay, it's time to do a PhD. And I'm just like, how did I get here? <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm actually on this journey to do medicine. Yeah. Um, so that's when we planned ahead um, and I went from being a scientist back to uni again. And luckily with um, every year, my marks got better because I, you know, you know how to how the university system works and how to study. I literally didn't know how to study when I got to uni and how to write good essays. Mm. Um, some of the feedback was so harsh from the tutors. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, anyway. Um, and so I got, uh, every year got a bit better my marks and by the end I got uh, first class honours. And so thankfully that got me the A pluses I needed to get into med mm. so I could start that journey. Wow. A little bit of a longer story. Hey? Yeah. <laughs> How many years was that since graduating high school? Yeah, it was five. Oh, right. So, and then plus med, it was 10 years. 10 years that yeah. you were at uni. Were you, so you were, um, 
did you work after gr- doing your honours? Yeah, so I worked for four years as a scientist. And it was that was really good as well because I was quite young. Yeah. Um, so it gave me a lot of skills like doing presentations, um, having the confidence to talk in meetings um, around New Zealand and publish papers. So that all really looked really good on the CV. <laughs> so there were lots of benefits to that as well. Um, and then my topic is diabetes and cancer and diabetes is a huge issue for Māori so it's kind of come full circle for me um, so I'm really grateful for that knowledge anyway. So it was eight years since high school that you entered into medical yeah, school, is that right? Yeah, at least, probably nine. I finished high school at 16 so again I was probably a bit young. Okay, so <laughs> uh, 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 one of the things that I really want to know is for both of you, how how common was the idea of kind of, you know, you both said that you had the idea of wanting to be a doctor. And obviously, Georgia, with you, you had that kind of background in your family. Mm-hmm. It was, in a way, like normalized in your family, at least. Yeah. Um, and Coralie, you were quite different because you didn't, you didn't have any medical people, you said. You didn't no, have anyone to really. No. So how normal was that, even just within your peer group, at least, to kind of want to do medicine? Um. Well, I had, so in my high school, there was um, only 4% of my high school was Pacific Islander. And so it was um, a very interesting experience. And it was really, really shown to me that the standard that my parents held for me academically was very different to the standard that um, my teachers and fellow Papa'a Pākehā students had about me. So... In my household and within my um, kōpū tangata, within my family, it was normal. But in high school, it was um, met with a lot of surprise, a lot of questions, a lot of doubt. And um, fortunately, I had a really close friend who's someone who also wanted to be a doctor. Mm. And so her and I really clung on to each other throughout high school because, yeah, it was... Um, and it was different. It was kind of difficult for me to have those experiences from the household that I'd grown up in, where it was never questioned. It was just like, yeah, she's going to be a doctor. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so that was my experience. High school was <laughs> a, a difficult time. Mm. Yeah, in high school, um, I have I felt that being at all Māori high school, some of the teachers had sort of already given up on us and had quite low expectations of what you what we could achieve. But they could see the drive in me and another student there who's also now a doctor. So we both knew we wanted to get into medicine. Um, and thankfully she got, she was really good at chemistry and got um, straight in. Um, and she's now a GP. So it's, that's so awesome that our school, from our one year of seven people, we've mm. made two doctors. Um, but I'd say a lot of it, it's not just the school. <laughs> it's like a lot of your family supporting you. So my mum is educated. So um, what I like learning about at uni is that we have these different protective factors. Mm. So even though we may have um, different dif- disadvantages, we also have other privileges which protect us and help us um, get to where we are it's not solely by ourselves alone. So although mum's not medical, she did have the awareness that, you know, I needed to pursue education um, so that she, 
I wasn't a struggling artist trying to feed the family. She's like, don't, don't do art. Whatever you do. Um, I love art, actually. Um, so I had, uh, her name's Ihipeta. And so we were very competitive, actually, because we both wanted to be ducks. So that actually just drove us harder and harder. And we got joint ducks in the end. Um, but so here, we, here I am thinking, oh, I'm going to go into uni. But when I got to uni... The, the ducks is way above. So I'm, I'm ducks of seven people, sure. But when you get to uni, it's a whole new level. So for just for anyone who's not familiar, ducks means first in your school when you're, of your graduating year. Yeah. I was just going to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the things that Justin was getting at with that initial question was that, um, well, in my experience, Māori and Pacifica, because they don't have those role models, and as well as because of the oppression and all that's gone on when they, um, sometimes there's obviously an over-representation in lower socioeconomic areas. It's sort of, it's like a foreign idea to be into healthcare for some of the Māori and Pacific people that I've met. Is that, is that do you get that way? That it's sort of like oh. they don't have those role models? So um, well, two things. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just be careful with the wording. Mm. about saying, um, just saying Māori and Pacific don't have those role models. Always start with some Māori and Pacific okay. peoples do not have those role models yeah. because it's doing too much of a generalisation. Um, it's just that I get that a lot in the hospital. And mm. I, yeah, so, you know, if you want to, if people want to apply something, just always put some mm. in the, in the mm. front. Um, and it's not necessarily a foreign idea, but it is true that if you don't see people like you within that setting, you don't know what's attainable. Mm. And so, um, you know, for you having those role models, you're mm. like, well, of course I, that's achievable for me yeah. because yeah. it's been done. My right. family's done it. So, um, and that's the point of having, having like adequate and appropriate representation of Māori and Pacific peoples within the healthcare setting so that it's not only normalised but we have these role models and we're like they're like me they understand my culture mm. they don't you know sweep my thoughts aside in the way that I do things I'm actually boosted and so not only do we need to get to 16% for Māori as a representation um, but we need to go beyond that because of the inequities so mm. to reduce inequities all doctors are needed going to are going to have to understand the causes, the upstream causes, but then um, we also need that representation. And yeah, I think that it's a lot, um, not necessarily like Pacific Islanders, it's just reinforced by everyone else that it's not a place that we belong in. We don't belong in academic success. We don't belong in um, hospitals. And for me, that was an idea that was reinforced by teachers and peers. So it wasn't necessarily that, like, from home I didn't have the role models. It was what everyone else was saying, where I belong in, um, like, this society. I don't belong in academic and I don't belong in the hospital. Mm. Mm. I really feel, because I get the chance to work with a lot of Māori and Pacific students, mm. um, more Pacific, actually, than Māori in, with the schools that I tend to work with. But I do often find, not always, but I do often find that some of the biggest barriers is actually trying to convince the teacher that 
setting such a low standard is not going to really help. So I'll come in and I'll say, look, you have a class of 30 students. You have 30 driven Maori and or Pacific students who are keen to enter a field of healthcare. I'm coming in there saying like, you can do this. We can build up the skills. You can actually have a decent chance. And they're saying like, oh, look, let's just focus on getting some passes, you know, in there. And it's like, okay, look, it's all good that you need to meet your whatever quota of passes. But just having that entire mentality is just so detrimental. And I actually see a noticeable difference in the schools that I work with where the teacher is supportive. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a really clear outcome difference. You know, some schools where they don't have that support, they wouldn't have produced a doctor in 20, 30 years of generations of students. And some are producing, you know, a doctor you know, every year or, mm. you know, so I think it makes a really big difference. Mm. On the um, topic of representation, Carla, this is really weird. Here we go. <laughs> On the topic of uh, representation that you were mentioning before, I know that both of you are quite active in your own sort of ways and throughout your whole experience, um, trying to aim towards better representation in the fields that you're both in. Um, could you guys talk a little bit more about that? Maybe you could get a better idea about what both of you are into right now and what you're up to. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so personally for me, I had been working, um, not so much now, but I was working with NZQA and NCA as a Pacifica STEM ambassador. And what I was doing with that is we were going into high schools and we did one amazing session at um, Wesley College and we went in and taught science to students. And that was one of the best things I've done. They had um, they showed us the stats and where in a test they would be lucky to get, you know, I think it was 10 students turning up um, to their exam. After our session, they had 70 to 80 students wow. turning up. And it was just the same idea. <laughs> yeah, it was what I, it's what um, you talked about is that um, we went in as teachers and mm. believed in them and we weren't just saying, oh, like, these are how you get your A3s and A4s. We were like, mm. you know, these are how you get your excellences. And that was one of the best sessions that I'd had um, working in that job. We also were working with the digital team for NZQA, which, who were focused on digitising all the NCA exams and making sure that they were doing it in a way that wasn't going to be detrimental to our Pacific community. I mean, with, you know, access to computers, with computer competency and stuff. And then now from last year, I was working to get a Pacific um, role on Auckland University Medical Students Association, UMSA. And that's like an advocacy role within the medical school to make sure that um, we worked on a Māori role to make sure Māori and Pacific students are being represented and heard. Um, Yeah, that was another challenge within itself. And I work with uh, MAPAS, the Māori and Pacific Admission Scheme, as a tutor in a tuakana, trying to get first-year students into medical school with biology tutoring. Um, Yeah, I think that's what I do. I also work with the medical school um, in teaching. So teaching labs and stuff like that and trying to be a brown face in those labs. So um, our Māori and Pacific students feel a bit more comfortable Mm. approaching a tutor. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And that is is my CV. (laughs) Give me a job. Yeah. These two people on the left of me are like beyond impressive to say the least. But yeah, amazing. Just different journeys. Yeah. yeah, during my med school, I 
didn't actually get the opportunity to do these extra things because I was kind of just wading through it, just trying to survive myself. Um, and I was fortunate to have a tour kind of mentor, which was great. And I'm not sure if we did much else than meet up for coffee, but even that was nice to know that she's a couple of years ahead of me and these things are attainable. She's, you know, comfortably going through university. So all these little things in your life do help. Um, I did apply for the tour kind of role, but maybe my grades weren't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, throughout medicine, I'd say um, mine's more with as being a doctor. Um, so because there are not enough of us in the healthcare setting. Can you give Can you give some numbers? Actually, do you know any numbers off the top of your head? No, what I that underrepresentation? The um. So the goal for 2020 from the Ministry of Health was to get 10% representation of Māori in the public health force. So that's um, nurses, doctors, um, physiotherapists, OT, like all across the board. Um, but the stats, so it, all the stats are a bit delayed because we're collecting the data. So sort of from the 2017 to 19 range, we're only at 3%. Jeez. And so we're already at 2020 and we... So, you know, have not achieved that. Um, yeah, so when I get the chance as a doctor, because my audience is going to be other doctors and people um, working in the healthcare setting right now, I make sure to have a kaupapa Māori. Um, basically, it's all about Māori. <laughs> and I'm like, am I being biased? I'm like, no, I need to reduce inequity. So I'm going to get... Every opportunity I get, I'm going to teach um, these people who are on the uh, front line doing the work and maybe being able to change how they act. Um, so whenever I give talks within the hospital, as we have to do as doctors and keep sort of up to date and evidence-based, I make sure it's relevant to their field so that they can see how inequitable their field is. Mm -hmm. So my recent placement, loved it. I requested renal medicine. And I thought, oh, Auckland City, I won't see that many Māori here because um, in the central city, um, the representation is about 8%, even though 24% of all Māori live in Auckland. Um, so I was like, oh, I won't see many Māori Pacific Islanders, but the opposite was true. Mm. Most of the ward was Māori and Pacific, and this is end-stage renal failure, so your kidneys are literally about to give up on you, and of course you'll die if you don't get... Um, renal replacement therapy. Um, and so 70% of both Māori and Pacific patients, their primary cause of their kidneys failing, failing was type 2 diabetes. So this is a preventable disease. Um, and so on the ward, you know, I'd see woman, she just had her baby, she was 20, with end-stage renal failure. You know, this is so unacceptable. Where, how short, it's how much shorter short. is her life going to be, yeah. you know, um, because you can only be on this replacement therapy for X amount of years and then you need to go to next steps. And there's a lot of complications, a lot of medications, a lot of um, visits um, and a lot of DNAs when people can't come. It's like, yeah, their life is hard. So like DNA. They've got a lot. Do not, a, did not attend. Yeah. Tell me a little bit. <laughs> Let's talk about DNA real briefly. Just yeah. So I had to do clinics, um, and being a health officer, 
they only they gave me less so that I could spend more time with the um, patients, educating them about um, kid how kidneys work and their new health condition, um, which was great. Loved having that extra time. Um, but I'd read up ahead in my Māori patients. I'm like, great, yeah, you know, they can see a Māori doctor. And she did not attend. And I was like, damn, because her previous one, she didn't attend. Um, so I tried to give her a call and I told the nurse, I honestly wanted to drive because we have their addresses. I was like, <laughs> I'd maybe I'll just like drop in. <laughs> um, you know, so I saw, told the consult consultant, I was like, what do we do? Like, I need to get this info to her. Her kidney's about to die. And, you know, she's like, unfortunately, we have to discharge her from the service. And she's to go back to the GP, wait again to get in line to the specialty. I'm like, I think she's going to present to ED faster than that happens. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a lot of issues. It's not just she didn't turn up. It's like, did she have transport? Mm -hmm. Does she have a newborn? Does she have issues at, at home? Does she have other addictions? There's so many facets of a person's life that prevents you from getting to an appointment which you're not really sure what's about, mm -hmm. you know, if we haven't taken um, bio, human bio at school, do people know what a kidney is? And I know a lot of my patients did not know what a kidney is. So how do you know to save your kidney? Yeah. Like what, what yeah, th yeah. that doesn't sound very important, you know? <laughs> and then oh, I've had so many experiences where the consultant was just like, not on renal, this is something else. They were excellent on renal, loved it. Um, they're like, don't drink um beer don't have salt your kidney's gonna die you know just like telling the patient off and it was a consultation and he left and I was like do you know what a kidney is and the patient's like no I was like okay mm. I'll finish the ward round and I'll come back don't leave you know it's just like get the basics first yeah, yeah. so yeah. a lot of experiences like this I think it's really hard for people that haven't grown up with that background to even consider that this is what the patients are even thinking in the mm. first place you know if you've grown up around like just highly academic people all your life and then, you know, you, everyone knows what a kidney is and then you, you know, you don't show up your appointment a few times, like, well, like it's your own fault. You know, yeah. it's easy to have that mentality um, without really thinking about like, well, you know, would you ever attended the appointment on like a bad day for you? Well, maybe, you know, your bad day is like a normal day for you know this yeah. person where they can't you know get to transport what you know, their bad things. day would be traffic or <laughs> i uh my kid threw a tantrum this morning mm. like a, like yeah respect yeah. matters there as well i think two just quickly <laughs> two other things regarding that so with these patients with end-stage renal failure they also have less opportunity to get a kidney um, replacement so our ward was sort of divided in two and on this side is everyone who got to receive a new kidney and so they switch drugs and outcomes better. They've got a functioning kidney to clean their blood. Um, and it was mostly Pakia. And that was big, that's this really multifaceted, but also, you know, there's majority of people are Pakia, so there's more kidneys to donate. But then when there's more comorbidities um, within the patient, they're not eligible to then get that transplant. So but comorbidity means other diseases that the person would have. Mm, and then within the um, wider nation, if there's more comorbidities in um, Māori or Pacific people, um, then they're not uh, eligible donors. So there's a lesser pool of kidneys. So there's just so many barriers. Um, and then the other one regarding did not attend. Um, 
it's not just it's not the individual it's so broad and so um, systemic with so many long-term effects from colonization and into poverty um yeah so some people are a bit condemning of individuals when they haven't thought of the broader picture and how do people get into that position yeah it's like the we learned about it a bit in medical school with a deficit framing approach mm. that's taught in our Hauru Māori program and it's the idea that um, a lot of systemic issues and things that have happened because of colonisation of Aotearoa and the impact um, of all that is you know, people tend to blame the individual rather than blaming the system that mm. placed the individual where they're at right now and that's one thing that I think is really detrimental to our Māori Pacific patients is we are seen constantly or we get described as in medical school as, you know, we're the difficult patients. Mm. Like, your Māori Pacific people are going to be the ones who don't attend appointments. They don't mm. know what their medication is. They came in eating KFC. They don't speak English. Like, there's just so many stereotypes that in medical school are taught and reinforced. And then... Um, I mean, like, when we learn about Māori Pacific people, it's, you know, it's just their health inequities. You don't mm. learn anything else. And so then doctors treat Māori Pacific patients a certain way because that's the way the medical school has enforced it. And, you know, the hidden curriculum um, being how doctors, when you're, like, in placement, how doctors treat Māori and Pacific patients and, you know, the stereotypes that they constantly reinforce. Mm. And it makes it hard to you know, hear that about your people constantly. Mm. And, you know, just even with clinical scenarios that we get, it's just always the same rhetoric about mm. our people. Mm. Mm. And I think that's, the, again, the thing when you should use the word some in front of it. So although there's an over-representation, it's to remember that every person you see is a completely different individual. So if I was in a gown and then before they come in to see me and it says, you know, Māori, for them not to have mm. immediate thoughts, mm. oh, smoker, mm. drinker, da-da-da-da. Mm. And because you've, you know, you've taken these clothes away and you've taken a bit of respect and mana away from the person, so you're, you're judging them um, due to these unconscious biases, which are sometimes quite conscious. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. yeah. So you just mentioned the word mana. And yeah. we've got an international audience. Can you just right. give a quick... Um, do you? No. <laughs> we do. We've got thousands of... Maybe even millions. I uh, didn't know that. We'll go worldwide. Um, mana is like the prestige that you hold within yourself. So someone can be born with mana. Um, so um, in earlier times, it was quite obvious, you know, if you're a chief, you have a mana that you're born with. Um, sort of like a nobility, but you can also gain and lose mana. So things that you do, you know, it might be for your people or in the past it would be battles that you've won will gain you prestige. And But you can also defame your name and lose mana. Um, so people can do things to you that try and sort of belittle you and suppress your mana. So, yeah, the word is kind of like a prestige or just how you hold yourself as well. Mm. Um, I just wanted to go back to what you were talking about. Um, I've seen it happen twice in terms of, you know, uh, the, the, the group of surgeons or the doctors would come gather around and they'll um, uh, have a list of patients on, uh, regarding maybe some sort of organ transplant or seeing whether they're, you know, 
uh, fit to receive it or not based on all their comorbidities and their progress because this wouldn't have been the first clinic that they've um, you know visited and so the doctors will give them some sort of advice saying you know if we were if you want to proceed with this operation to make you better you're going to have to reach these points and these sort of deadlines um, by this time and then we'll bring you back into the into the meeting and we'll see how it goes from there um, so that that was a new sort of thing to me it's my first year in clinicals this year so um, that was cool but it was it's ridiculous and I still find it so so um, surprising that like sometimes if you're not actually looking for it and listening for the decision to be made it's almost as if they're just having a normal conversation because it's it's a thing that happens regularly um, but this, it's like to think that that's a person's life that it's just sort of like didn't meet the quota sorry we can't do it mm. next one who's next yeah that's that's the sort of tone that was at um but i also do notice and i can't you know it's you can't blame the person over here itself even in terms of the doctor it's well not entirely as well but um like there's a sense of defeat in the and even in the doctor's voice as well when i hear him say we can't do anything partial sense of disappointment saying you know like uh you didn't reach it damn it um, the other side is also like a sense of defeat there that like, you know, we tell we told you that we, we, you need to hit this, 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 but you didn't. Mm. But I don't blame you entirely either. I think doctors are improving now compared to back in the day, at mm. least. Well, not that I know back in the day what it's like, but, you know, they are improving in terms of their um, cultural competency in that way as well. And trying to and, and trying to, you know, just be a bit more aware about mm. about the other things that would effect or you know like the access like mm. everything really that means that, that they won't actually be able to meet those deadlines and those you know those goals yeah can i, I make a quick comment mm. so when i was in high school right i mean i didn't have pretty much any maori or pacific friends i probably like there was probably like three in my whole school honestly um i grew up you know learning about treaty of waitangi and Maori health or Maori iniquities in general from social studies or social science at school. I hated it. It was my least favorite subject. I thought it was boring. Mm. As a result of that, I thought the whole topic was just very, um, I had a, a very blasé attitude mm. about the entire thing. I think a lot of students are like that, um, that don't have the kind of ingrained background. Mm. I learned about most of this stuff in university through courses. And then I gained more knowledge on that through medical school. And then we have got all that cultural competency training through medical school. We've got, you know, University of Auckland has Maori Health Week, which tries to sort of intensively cram like an entire culture in one week. Mm. And, uh, and, then you work <laughs> as a, and then you work as a doctor, right? And you work as a doctor and you get continued sort of this education opportunity like that. Uh, so I feel like I've undergone a certain transformation in terms of my understanding. I feel that my knowledge and real understanding of culture and cultural competency was absolutely nothing compared to when I actually started for educational work, going into schools, talking to students, working with students, talking to Fano, seeing what it's actually like, mm. talking to the teachers and the principals. I think to be totally honest, the, I mean, this is my freaking podcast. I can say whatever I want. <laughs> also you know, your opinion. I, I think that the way that we are taught cultural competency in medical school is incredibly tokenistic. Yeah. I really it think is. that yeah. it's, it's it underdoes it. I felt that I was at no point very well prepared to deal with the challenges in a meaningful way for my Maori or Pacific patients. Mm. 
there are multiple times where I saw patients and I thought, you're basically going to die, you know, imminently or just close to imminently. And for some reason, like, I just cannot communicate that. Like, there just seems to be some kind of barrier. Literally, someone who was about to have a burst ectopic pregnancy, which means that the, you know, baby is implanted somewhere it shouldn't be. And if that, that's basically life-threatening. We did an ultrasound scan. We were like, this person is about to have, you know, has an ectopic pregnancy. You need to get an operation now. Mm. And then she left because she was hungry. Mm. You know, like that's, this, this is not a person that's just so stupid or suicidal. It's just someone who just clearly didn't have the kind of health communication background literacy alignment there for it to click that actually like, this is some serious stuff. I need to have an operation like, and that alignment. And, you know, I did all of medical school and it just never really settled in. Um, up until recently, I'd use that term as well regarding that person's health literacy, and it's true um, because we've all come from different backgrounds and we don't even have to finish school, so you, know, you can leave at 15. Um, and you've got such minimal exposure to biology. It's probably the only compulsory subject. Um, but what uh, – so it's another podcast <laughs> by Emma Espiner. Has anyone listened to that one? Oh, it's great. And she highlighted it to me. So she's a medical student right now and also a writer, Māori um, med student. Um, she highlighted with, within a podcast I listened to recently that the health literacy is putting the onus on the person, you know, rather than us being saying that we didn't appropriately uh, convey the knowledge that we have and been trained for years. You know, I, I, I and now... We're trained to give that knowledge to lay people, so we didn't appropriately pass on that knowledge of how serious it was. And if she, that if she didn't understand it, then we actually failed her. Mm. So it's not in her health literacy; it's in it's our role to make sure that was clear. It's like health educational competency. Mm. Yeah. But and again, when you work in the real system, we're so pressed for time. Like with all my patients, I want to convey this knowledge and teach mm. them um, so that when they leave, you've had a like tangible impact on their life um, so that they can implement these health changes. But you're so rushed off your feet. It's actually a um, systemic issue within funding for the DHBs. Mm. And often to compensate for that is just, here's a pamphlet. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I think we talked about this in the previous podcast, right? Where we said that basically informed decision making is pretty yeah. much a myth because you never yeah. get enough time yeah. to inform Very them enough yeah. to make an informed yeah. decision. And I guess with that issue is that when you're time pressured, that's when as doctors your biases will jump out. Mm -hmm. And that's when, you know, your Māori and Pacific patients are going to feel it the most. And um, healthcare in New Zealand or in any sort of Papa A Pakeha society isn't um, isn't made to benefit Māori and Pacific people and it's not made to benefit anyone but um, sort of our cishet white community. And so I think that whole system and the way everything is set out is that's why we have these things happening and that's why you have patients who, when they have an urgent ectopic pregnancy, it's, you know, that's why there's the dissonance. Um, mm. Yeah, you can get so deep with it all. Is it's not just the health, it's everything. Mm. I think an example for that, because people might listen and be like, 
equal yeah. opportunities to access healthcare that's not inequitable. But um, so I think what you mean by when it benefits park here. So um, so Dr Nina Scott, she is a public health physician working in cancer. Um, and so Māori are twice as likely to um, get different cancers and then, anyway, I'll withhold the percentages, <laughs> but more likely to get the um, get different types of cancers because there's other risks such as type 2 diabetes and um, lifestyle factors, um, and then but also die from the cancers. And so when we do health screening, for example, for bowel cancer, um, we create, because of funding, we create age cutoffs. So if we um, screen everyone above 65, say, and then I want to target 70% of males that will get a good enough pool for screening for bowel cancer. But what she proposed is like, well, Māori are getting this bowel cancer younger mm -hmm. and um, um, to get the same health um, more mortality benefits that Pākehā do from the screening pool, we need to have a broader target for mm. Māori. So actually screen more Māori at a younger age, um, and it was about at 55, because uh, Māori have a seven-year younger life expectancy than non-Māori, which is huge. Um, you know, so she proposed this, but they, you know, ten two tangible facts that she's just pointed out to um, make it equitable for Māori, you need to lower the age of screening. Because if they're dying in their 70s, 65 is too late, yeah. and they're going to die from the cancer. So I'll just make a quick interject. So with the screening program, the point of doing a screening program is so, so that you can catch something early enough mm -hmm. to actually make a difference. You're not going to run a screening program on people that got shot on the head, for example, because there's, there's nothing you can do about it. Screening for death. Yeah, so, so you know, the, the whole purpose of the screening program is to prevent serious complications from it. So, mm. you know, but you're saying that it's too late yeah. to have that same So age. you have to change the criteria mm. to fit the population, and especially if we already know the outcomes are inequitable. So to make it equitable, you need to change the criteria, but currently it just fits the majority of, of people. Mm. Um, so she proposed that to the council and they turned they said no we won't do that and so what happens is a knee-jerk reaction when it's like we're getting all these patients all these Māori patients you know with cancer and what are we going to do and it's like you need to <laughs> act mm. earlier um, but I think they're making progress this do year. we know why it was rejected well no, finance is a big thing because yeah. to do something 10 years earlier with a bigger pool of people maybe you know what I if they would speculate. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I might be speculating over here as well, but if you were to compare the cost of them coming into the system later, yeah. where mm. the cost would be much higher to treat their condition that they've now got, because I, I think screenings, screening tests aren't very expensive. No. Well, compared to, yeah, compared to hospital treatment. Right, yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Much, yeah. Much cheaper. I mean, lay people may not know, but hospitals are very expensive. You know, a single night in a surgical ward in hospital can easily be $1,000 per night yeah. without even having received any treatments. If someone stays for a long time for like renal failure or bowel cancer, they get a big operation. You know, that, that's looking at costing the health system fifty dollars to $100,000 for that one person stay. Screening program, 200 bucks for, for a person. I mean, it does, it does pay off.